This is Seek Bytes, the software engineering podcast by Seek.com. Join our experts as they share their thoughts on tips on mastering the craft of code. From career advice to technical deep dives, Seek Bytes is the podcast for software engineers by software engineers. Okay, what a start. <laughs> wow, Seamus opened it up with some loud music, a bit of a laugh track. Um, there we go. There's, there's the music I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, that's great. Just for Glenn. Yeah, we... <laughs> I don't... I, yeah, this, I mean, if this was a sitcom, that would really, really turn out well, hey? Uh, and today's topic is developer experience. We've got myself, William Lark, I'm a senior developer here. And uh, let's just go around the table. Hi, I'm Seamus Carney, Senior Developer at Seek. And I'm Raina, recently also Senior Developer at Seek. Hell yeah. Today's topic is developer experience, which I think is very fitting. We've done a few episodes now. We're feeling quite comfortable. I feel like our experience uh, doing this podcast has gotten better, I would say. And I feel like it relates very well to our kind of day-to-day jobs of how we experience Dev, um, but let's let's kick it off. What what are you guys' thoughts on what is developer experience to you? How would you kind of describe it? It's such a broad subject. I think mm. it could it could mean anything from the languages that you choose to write in, the test strategies, the um, the internal tooling that your company has to you know alleviate the need for expert knowledge across many different facets of software development, like networking and uh, CI/CD and stuff like that. Um, I feel like I feel like it constitutes almost every aspect of what we do as developers, even even just down to like the communication structures in your company. How how easy or hard is it for developers to communicate with each other and get things done? Like the dev experience encapsulates everything in my mind. Yeah, I think like if I could put it into one sentence, it's what makes a developer productive and also satisfied with. Your the code writing part. It could be getting the information part. It could be um, deploying that feature out into production. All of that cumulative experience is a part of that dev experience. Definitely, yeah. And, and we have like what teams around just solely around developer experience and making yeah making that experience easier and and and, and more interesting, more fun for for developers just to kind of help them be more productive, right? I feel like it's one of those things where there's going to be engineers who care very deeply about developer experience to the point where it's their primary focus when they're implementing things. Mm-hmm. Like they're thinking about the the next person who has to come in and change this code or the person who has to consume the API or whatever. I feel like that outside of software as well though, like driving to work, how many lanes are free, how many cars are there in <laughs> each lane, like let's even it up so that everyone gets there at the same time, like you should zip emerge when you're merging onto the highway. Like I think about the experience and trying to like make the experience good for as many people as possible whenever I'm doing anything. And I can't imagine not being like that, although I, I guarantee you there's a lot of people that are like that. And just writing code and not thinking about anything beyond solving the problem at hand. Yeah, I think you're talking about a different type of DX. That's called driver experience. <laughs> it's like life experience. Yeah. Yeah, so DX is is a acronym for developer experience. Is that the right 
acronym. I have not heard it before, but I will accept that. Yes. Um, so he, he is the my little like two-sentence thing that I'm reading from, from this article that I found. Um, developer experience focuses on the lived experience of developers and the points of friction they encounter in their everyday work. In, a different, in addition to improving productivity, DevX drives business performance through increased efficiency, product quali- quality, and improved retention. There you go. There's a little brief summary of kind of what it is. Improved retention. Imp- yes. How yeah. happy you are, Yojo. Yeah. But it's also interesting that that sentence includes business, something about business capability. Was it? Or business, uh, performance? business performance. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah, because it's like you're not having to focus so heavily on the things that you're not an expert in or potentially not interested in. Like, oh, I've got to make UI changes, but I don't really – I'm not a CSS expert. I'm not a React mm. expert. So then we've got like a library of components. So like I can do UI now without having to do UI now. So I guess that's what they're talking about, right? Like it enables better business performance mm-hmm. through having less friction in your experience. Yeah, I think it's like – I interpret it as a business wants this – you know, feature out or we want to capture some customer's behavior or something like that and it's just quicker for us to get that delivered. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Yeah, I, I think this, funny funny enough, we've talked about like dev burnout for, you know, I think previously on the podcast and I think probably developer experience kind of encompasses like helping with that as well because developer experience is uh, about how developers feel and think and and, the, and how they kind of value their work. Um, I mean, that in itself can very much help with the burnout, just like improving dev experience. These two things would basically be hand in hand. Like they're almost the same thing, right? Like yeah. your level or the average person's level of burnout is going to be very, very closely related to the friction of their developer experience. Oh, yeah. It's mm-hmm. like a de facto relationship between the two of them. Just... Like if you've got a great <laughs> developer experience, why would you be unhappy thinking yeah. about moving? You know what I mean? Like it means there's got to be something in your developer experience that's bad. Yeah. But I guess for some people, they're like very specifically thinking about just code stuff. Yeah, okay. At universities, the thing that they're telling everyone is that like 75% of your job as an engineer is uh, communication. Right. I see. So they like lay out, here's all the, I remember when I was at uni, they laid out like 15 different things that constitute like what you have to do on a day-to-day basis as an engineer. And they got everyone to like rank out of 10 or like a percentage how much of they think their day is and communication was so low for the vast majority of people being like oh yeah 20% of the day is comms and the rest of it's like writing code solving problems whiteboarding and then yeah they like reveal the stats and it's like something like 75% to 80% of what you do on a day-to-day basis is just communicating because people don't realize that like your code is also a way of communicating to the next developer that you might never get to meet face-to-face. Where's, where, where do you think dev experience is kind of primarily focused on? What, what sort of things do you think primarily help us with dev experience? Personally, like I, when I think of dev experience, I just think of my, my day-to-day writing code, speaking to people, gathering information to understand the problem. So it's, it's knowing where to find information, like the tools that help that, getting in that information is probably like the thing I struggle with most and never know where to go. Mm-hmm. Um, the tools. You're saying the tools are kind of a big part of that? Yeah. And then writing the code itself or pairing with someone to write code, that experience can also be, um, yeah, it can really shape how I feel <laughs> about the task on the day. It's funny, you mentioned pairing and it's one of those things where like I'm such a 
strong proponent for pairing just because I've found it immensely effective at helping me solve problems faster but learn all these different ways of approaching problems and it's single-handedly is one it's one of the most impactful factors in my own growth over the last six years whatever working at seek um and every time I meet people who just are diametrically opposed to pairing, like they're like, oh, if people want to pair, like they, they understand the value in it, but for them, they just don't enjoy it. They can't do it. It's just so much friction. So for them, their developer experience is poor if that team mm-hmm. pushes uh, pair programming. But like that is something that I, I try to push in our team. And I, it's, yeah, it's just not something that I ever had to think about. And now as we're talking about developer experience, like everyone's got a different opinion about what makes a great developer experience. Yeah, but also on a topic of pair programming, like providing that environment for a smooth pair programming experience is also really difficult, especially now that we, we might we are probably not sitting next to each other staring at the same screen. And v- VS Code Live Share, sorry, man. <laughs> it yeah. has been good, but it hasn't been great. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. I think that's that kind of balance between you know finding finding the right tools, but also finding the right amount of like human factors that kind of bring out good DevX. Because I th- I think that that's a, an ever shifting balance. You can find good human factors, good pairs, good people to work with, but if the tools aren't providing that, that can be kind of your where you're lacking. Um, and I think like finding ways to measure that is is really important. Yeah, pair programming is something in particular that we. Uh, preach during the accelerator program for software grads, and uh, the idea is just to try and like you know grassroots from the ground up try to promote good uh, or what Seek believes is good programming culture. Um, pair programming being one of those just excellent tools that helps us you know keep each other accountable and learn from each other and that kind of thing. Is there anything that kind of negatively affects you and your experience day to day? I have many opinions. You have many opinions? You can go, Seamus. <laughs> you can go, like, you can leave, Seamus. You can go. <laughs> no, no, I can that's go. Not what I, <laughs> I can leave. Please. Uh, Tell us. Raina, do you have anything in particular that, that you find frustrating on a day to day basis to do with developer experience? Like, right now, it is getting information on the task at hand. I think that's, like, off the top of my head, probably a struggle that I have to just get context on this card. Like, there's this card here, trying to understand the problem and trying to understand um, who I might need to chat to or what other systems do I need to understand before I start the implementation. That has been hard. Yeah, I think especially with Seeks, like, six so big but there's also quite a few systems that we have in-house like internal tools that we use in-house that I'm I may know how to use but I may not know how it actually works under the hood and trying to understand that so that I don't you know build something that's completely off track if that makes sense that's probably my number one like how easy it is to find information yeah I I feel like that was probably one of our number one things in some of our like uh the surveys of what we would like to improve, documentation and like information was, I feel it's always up there, um, particularly as teams grow and, mm. and and tech grows, like just understanding how everything works and people leaving um, 
information can can get lost. I definitely feel that pain. Yeah, something that I have had to deal with across all the teams that I've been at, uh, been in at Seek, and just generally uh, is empty cards, just cards that have like a really <laughs> poor title and no detail whatsoever. Every team that I've been, uh, pretty much every team that I've been in, bar like the ones that I was in when I was a grad doing rotations, uh, I've had to push not with resistance, like no one's against this, but I've had to really like reinforce just clear acceptance criteria, you know, uh, definition of done. Like just, it doesn't even have to be, and it shouldn't be specifics of like what the task, like don't, don't be like do A, then do B, then do C. Be like, this is the outcome that we want, some high level outcome. And if that outcome is achieved, then the card is done. It's like, you're not just that small amount of detail makes such a massive difference. We've got work that happened uh, six months ago that was on an empty card during the Christmas break when there was l little people here and there wasn't anyone here to like validate that what they were doing was actually what the original intent of the card was. And so they worked for about a week on this stuff and we're now pulling it out six months later because oh, no. it wasn't the work that we wanted. And we knew that immediately after it was merged. Um, but after it was merged, yeah, like it was merged. <laughs> it was merged. We came back from leave, and we're like, "Oh, this was not what we. This was not where the change was supposed to happen. It was supposed to happen over here." So we yeah. still had to do the work, and we didn't have time to pull it out at the time because it was like, "Oh, well, no harm, no foul. It's not making anything any worse. We can just pull it out later because it's just not non-functional implementation stuff. That like it's not doing anything. But sorry, it is doing stuff." So it's not doing nothing because then it's easy to remove. The point I'm trying to get to is we're now removing it six months later, but it has evolved. Oh, no. So it's like a new tool was introduced that we didn't need to use that now we're more dependent on and we don't need it and now we're going to get rid of it. Yeah, someone's been feeding it greens, it's gotten bigger. It's, yeah. oh, no. Yeah. So, yeah, empty cards and uh, like... Because specifically the thing that you're raising originally, uh, obviously lack of like lack of access or challenging access to information is is hard. But specifically the lack of detail on cards mm -hmm. and not having context around starting cards is definitely a bugbear for me that I feel like is a developer experience every team should be paying attention to, mm -hmm. especially if you uh, want to consider yourself to be like a open and welcoming team for all levels of experience. Um, yeah, so many teams are just all senior engineers working on cards that have no context because everyone in the team is just hyper-functioning and like talking about That's what the right. card requires and like they just know what the work is. They, they don't need a detail in the card while they waste time doing that and it's, that's definitely, uh, I could keep going. Yeah, I, I see, yeah, you'd hate to get a card that just says like fix checkout. Like what, yeah. where, what, yeah. what's broken? Yeah, we had a card that was like uh, uh, 500s are being turned turned into 400s or... <laughs> no, that's right. Yeah, bad input is being turned into 500. So I was like, the card was just 400s are turning into 500s. Yeah. Yeah. Must that's, fix. That's just like, yeah, it's something's broken somewhere. That's essentially, <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. So I'll just test all of the input until I find one that errors in one scenario. Like it's, yeah, so impossible to track that down. And that was yeah. a card that people kept picking up, looking at it for half a day and then going, asking three or four people in the team going, I don't know what are we supposed to do with this card because the person who originally uh, found the issue isn't in the team anymore. Oh, isn't no. even at Seek anymore. And if someone's creating cards for other people to pick up, there needs to be detail there. And on, on top of that, I wanted to add not just the, not just the outcome of the card, but also the context and the problem that we're trying to solve. Really understanding that really helps to know the middle bit that you were saying, that implementation detail that, you know, we, we have freedom to figure out how to solve that problem, but as long as the outcome's achieved. Mm. There's a few things that I... 
sorry, there's a few things that I always do when I make cards. It's include a link to the repo that you have to make the change in because I, I try to think anytime I make a card, I come from the perspective of if I just joined Seek as a grad, could I, could I at least get to a point where I know where mm. I'm making the change and some idea about what the outcome is? So if I know where I need to go to make the change and what the outcome is, I can at least start to investigate even as the most entry-level engineer. So, like, you don't have to include links to repos and stuff. I think, like, a, that could be overkill because obviously there's other ways that you can make your code more identifiable, make it easier for people to find your stuff. But, yeah, bare minimum acceptance criteria and some kind of context, whether that context is a link to a repo or just an explanation of the problem, more than a five-word title. And in saying that, I'm very guilty of writing empty cards. So <laughs> <laughs> Just I have experience. <laughs> <laughs> Other people have dev negatively dev experienced that. From well. me, <laughs> yeah. something you, to work on. After this podcast, you're just you're just gonna like find all the like created by Rainer. Yeah. You just see empty <laughs> cards everywhere. <laughs> I can say that I've succeeded as an engineer if people listen to this podcast and go away and no longer make empty cards. <laughs> like if they just have that that little voice in the back of their head now when they just create another Jira card and they're like, oh, that guy said that thing on that podcast about how bad this is. I should not do that. I think this is interesting though because we all have different experiences of what you know we feel is is is, is a good developer experience. So this is uh, I don't know if this is widely known. This is just something I kind of read recently, but. Um, the three core dimensions of dev experience are flow state, feedback loops, and cognitive load. Um, and what's I can flow kinda, state? You're going to explain yeah, each one? Yeah, why not? Let's, I'll, I'll ask you, what's flow state? <laughs> <laughs> flow state. So flow state is kind of that speak of you, you're getting into the flow. So we're talking about minimizing disruptions, um, things like, yeah, just, just kind of you like getting into that state of I'm, I'm coding and I'm like effectively coding. Yeah. Think like 3 a.m. Mountain Dew or like, oh crap, it's 3 p.m. I just, I forgot to eat lunch. Flow yeah. state, that's flow state. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, no one else, just me? <laughs> Sorry, when he hits 12, my, my tummy's like, nah, I'm out, gotta eat. I'll be thinking about something I was I was trying to get finished the day before and I'll pick up my laptop early, like 7.30, just to like, I'll just quickly reply to a thing or whatever. And then suddenly it's uh, 11 o'clock and I'm like, I haven't even had a coffee. And I'm like, I'll just make a coffee real quick. And then suddenly it's 3 o'clock and I'm like, I've had a coffee all day today and like one uh, butterscotch biscuit or something. And uh, <laughs> suddenly dinner comes around and I'm like, I'm so hungry I can't eat. Yeah, it's bad. So hungry you can't eat. That yeah. is... That... You've never, you never been so hungry you can't eat? No, I'm so hungry I want to just keep uh, eating forever. It's a it's a common ADHD thing where like you, you get to this point where like you've been so distracted by stuff all day that you don't eat enough. Your stomach is like shrunk and then as soon as you start putting food in it, it almost hurts. Yeah. Yep. I'm so hungry now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> flow state also, sorry, you were going to say something, right? So what is flow state? Yeah. <laughs> It, it is, How is it defined in the article? <laughs> yeah, getting into the flow, being in the zone, yeah, having autonomy over your work, having clear team and project goals, um, stuff like that can help with your flow state. Uh, so that's flow state. There's also cognitive load, um, which is, yeah, the complexity of the ever-growing number of tools, technologies, and all that that can kind of uh, impact your work. Does it talk about working memory? Um, no. 
working memory. Do, do you know about this? That no, like I don't. humans have a um, generally, most people have a capacity of about five items that they can carry in working memory. Yes, I learned this in like psychology 101, that's yeah. right. Like your brain has a, f- a physical limit of the amount of neurons or whatever that can be firing for handling the juggling of like current context memory stuff. Mm-hmm. So like this is why when you're working on a problem, um, you might be using all five of those buckets for your current problem because you, you know there's different facets of the problem that you're dealing with. And when someone interjects and says, oh, I've got a question for you about this thing, you have to dump some of that working memory and it takes a, like a, a substantial amount of time to actually like pull it back into working memory. And so when people talk about like context shifting being hard, like it's a biological, neurological thing that we know scientifically for a fact there's a limit on the amount of stuff that you can hold in your brain. Mm-hmm. So cognitive load, like I use that term a lot um, because I'm trying to like express to someone that like as much as I might have the answer or I might be the, the right person for this thing, it's like the cognitive load, I don't have any, any capacity. The cognitive load is too high right now. Mm-hmm. How do you think like working in a in a team that may have high collaboration, how do we help each other, you know, like if, if say someone's got a question and they're like blocked in their task, then how do we help them get unblocked while we still have our own cognitive load full at full capacity? I try to always ask questions with caveats of like, this is not urgent or like um, reply when you can, um, you know, or if like, because I, some, because the way that my brain works, I'll, I'll have a, an idea suddenly, as you've heard me on the podcast, have an idea and then lose it 10 seconds later. And so I kind of need to get that idea out. So sometimes I'll just message people and be like, oh, here's a question. Because for me, the most effective way to do it is just to ask a question immediately. But I don't necessarily need the, the answer immediately. Um, yeah, that's a good point. That's why like sometimes Slack and, and, you know, the work from home stuff is good because you get like, there's a technological barrier to stop that cognitive load from uh, being interrupted mm-hmm. from someone just interjecting with some kind of context switch thing. I find it really hard in the office and I'm sure I'm sure a lot of people do. There's actually like a neurodivergence channel on our Slack that's just for people to talk about the challenges that they, fa- they face in the office with these kinds of problems, like just the noise, people interjecting, that kind of thing. Um, I, think, I think teams need uh, to vocalize their culture around... Um, communication because it's really easy for some people, especially people like me who are more extroverted, more social, to not be aware of the impact that a little interjection can have on someone else's cognitive load and how long it can take them to get all that context back. Um, Yeah, the teams that I've worked in where it's sort of like practiced as a culture is just the the courteous request for help. Um, I've I've found that it's been easy because you, you just like, if I know in, I've got, I'm giving them 15, I'll help you in 15 minutes, not just immediately. You can like wind down, you know, put it in a box. You can like, you can shuffle your working memory around so that the ideas are folded down a little bit and then help that person and then unpack them again. But if you're just like suddenly interjected, it, you don't, that pack down and unpack process, I feel like it's for me personally, it's almost, I lose an hour mm-hmm. if someone interjects suddenly. It's like, it takes me ages because I'll go through a bunch of loops looking at like Slack and emails and all these things before I finally get back to work. So yeah, I think just team culture needs to be open and like promote the that concept of courteous request for help. Yeah. Yeah, I think you've kind of touched on the two two things we've talked about so far. You've got cognitive load, which is yeah, if you're working on something difficult, complex, or even just understanding an unfamiliar unfamiliar system that can bump up the, the cognitive load. But 
you've then got that flow state in there where you need a flow state sometimes. If you've got high cognitive load, you also need a, a good flow state to be able to understand that and, and kind of get through that, which I think those two of the three points of the triangle. The other one is the feedback loops as well. Feedback loops are kind of your, your speed of how quickly can you get a response that something is working or failing or just uh, PR reviews or anything like that. Um, that would be the feedback loop, the other point of the triangle. Pairing. Pairing would be like a very, very short feedback loop, right? Like mm -hmm. another pair of eyes looking at it right there. You don't need a pull request. You've got another human looking at it right there. Yep. Just like completing work with minimal friction. So um, does the article talk about – so we talk about flow state when you're in it for, you know, you're in it mm -hmm. at the detriment of all other things potentially for some people. Uh, what was the other one? Was uh, cognitive. cognitive load. Mm -hmm. Talk about working memory and like, how complex things are and we have a limited capacity for it. And the third one was uh, feedback loops, right? Yes, yeah. So how do these three things work together to make a, a great developer experience? Yeah, well, I I think all of these things that we say kind of, hurt us as a, as in developing experience can kind of be grouped into these things. So if we're talking about, I guess, Rainy, like you mentioned a couple things earlier of things that like make you annoyed and even like tickets and stuff like that uh, with you, Seamus, I think these, these can kind of be, group the issues you have into these kind of three categories. It can help find where you need to improve. And the, there are some uh, ideas on ways to improve these. I think I get the idea though, right? Like you're saying, like we've identified there's some friction, right? Like, what are, you, what are you experiencing that's causing pain in your team? Empty cards, no detail, right? What are the problems that you're experiencing? Feedback loop, bad, because like you've got a card with no detail. How long is it going to take you to get to a point where you have the information to be able to solve the problem and get and actually get feedback that your approach is correct? Like mm. From the very start, you're creating a massive feedback loop by not giving any context. So you, you, you're extending the loop by not giving them the shortcut, right? Um, cognitive load, how much extra effort you have to go through to figure out what was this card for? What was the original intent? Is the author still here? Can I reach them? Uh, if I can reach them, like how long is it going to take to get a message back from them? Whatever. There's a million different things that could add to the cognitive load. And then what was the other one? Was um, <laughs> Flow state. Flow state. <laughs> flow state. There's no way that you're going to get into a flow state in that scenario because you're <laughs> constantly dealing with another problem, right? That's it, yeah. It's like that's the trifecta. I feel like that's maybe that maybe this is why empty cards is such a trigger for me because <laughs> it's like all three bad things with developer experience are promoted by yeah. empty cards. Yeah, so to improve developer experience, organizations should shorten feedback loops by identifying areas where development tools can be accelerated. Builds and test processes, development environment setup, uh, or even human handoff processes uh, improving. Uh, organizational structure should also be optimized to promote streamlined team interaction that minimizes delay. I imagine majority of people are probably going to be more interested in the actual dev dev side of developer experience. Like yeah. I'm, I'm very passionate about the human side of things. Like tests should be self-documenting. You know, cards should not be empty. Mm -hmm. These kinds of things. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people listening are, are probably like, from a code perspective, mm -hmm. how could I make the developer experience better? I mean, you could probably, it sounds like you could apply that triangle mm -hmm. to anything, any point of friction that you're experiencing in your the way that you write code, right? That's right, yeah. And that's the thing, because the developer experience is about the human aspect of it. How do you perceive it? Like a tool might be slow, but you might not perceive it as being slow. Well, Android developers, don't they, like a build could take minutes, many, many minutes, and that could be normal. Like maybe that's okay. I mean, reducing that, I'm sure, would help, but would that help the developer experience if, it doesn't affect them. Subjective. It's very subjective, absolutely. Yeah. Like, 
like you were just kind of touching on then, uh, talking about Android a little bit, um, speaking from experience, in iOS, if you release a version, like if you want to test your stuff, you've, you've got a software version of the phone that you can load your code up and, and play around with it, right? But it's not the same as the phone, as a physical phone, because it doesn't have the same memory limitations and stuff. So you have to go through like all the different configurations and, and like test out your code on every piece of hardware that is still live. Um, and if you do release a version with a bug, someone updates that version, they might not get a new phone or update the app for five, six years. So like you continue to get errors from that bug from five or six years ago. The feedback loop as a, as a mobile dev is massive. Yeah, true, right? But they're used to it. It's it's like, yeah, they complain about it. I know <laughs> for a fact they complain about it, but it's like a necessary evil. It's just part of being a, a mobile dev. Mm-hmm. It's just that ecosystem, right? So like you can't just go into every single environment and then apply the same fix. Every single team has to think about their developer experience independently. Mm-hmm. So how would you guys go about measuring that? Measuring developer experience? Um, measuring like, things is one of the hardest things that we have to deal with. So hard. It's, it, is, it is honestly one of the most challenging things that I have to deal with is figuring out how to measure um, like people's performance, people's growth, that kind of stuff. Um, we, can, we can do team health check surveys. Uh, we can do agile retros. Like There's ceremonies you can do to surface friction, to surface... Uh, things that aren't great in the developer experience, but measuring. Anytime someone says, how do we measure that? I'm like, hey, I can give you indicators. <laughs> like, but measuring measuring the developer experience, it's hard. Yeah, like do you have the right ratios of expertise so that, you know, you're getting opportunities to, to mentor, but also you're getting opportunities to be mentored? Um, do, are you being given adequate space to learn and develop so that you can get better at these tools that you're getting friction from. Like sometimes it, sometimes the tool might be great. Like, uh, you know, Splunk is a, a fantastic logging service. Um, but if you don't know how to do its advanced query joining and evals and stuff like that, then you might think that Splunk is a horrible developer experience. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I feel like health check surveys are a good way to surface some pain points. The turnaround time on PRs, mm-hmm. uh, how long do PRs on average live in the team? Um, could be an indicator of how complex your code is. Could also be an indicator of like um, how much change is happening in a single PR. So again, it's like it's hard to just say, oh yeah, our PRs are getting merged within an hour. That could be because people are just hitting approve and merging them. Mm-hmm. So it's like any any measurement that I would use to get a good indication of um, the developer experience being poor is hard to quantify because. Mm-hmm. It's it's uh I'm sure there's a data and an analytics term for it. It's like uh, dirty data or something like that. You know what I mean? Like you could you could apply your own causation to it and be like, here, it validates my belief, but it could be any any bunch of factors. Yeah. So there are some examples of like um, you can kind of split it between you've got feedback loops, cognitive load, flow state, and those can be kind of broken down into perceptions, workflows, and KPIs are the, the things you can kind of observe. So perceptions are like your human attitudes and opinions. So how satisfied are you with the, the automated test speed? And how satisfied are you with time it takes to validate a local change? Whereas workflows would be like time that it takes to generate CI results. So we're talking things about, yeah, your satisfaction and people's feelings and also like 
metrical data that you can actually uh, look at. <clears throat> yeah, okay. So targeted questions around specific aspects of the environment like how do you feel about your build times? Yeah. How do you feel about your test times? Yeah. How do you feel about making change to tests? Those are surveys we don't do. Yeah, true. Actually, we don't. I've never done those. a survey like that. No, neither. It's always like, "How am I feeling?" and stuff like that. But no, that's actually that's a good point. We don't do them. I think it's also a challenge to identify what aspects to ask about. It's something that we need a very intricate understanding of what your developer is going through. So it could. It, it dep- I think yeah, it depends on the team that uh, you're in, but. Like like you were saying for Android, the startup time for yeah. the what's it called mm. the software is super long, um, and it might not be a thing. But yeah, what was my point? My point is it's hard to know what aspects to ask about. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. The final thing to measure is also KPIs, just the overall perceived ease of delivering software, employee engagement, satisfaction, perceived productivity, and I feel like that's what we get surveyed for, for yeah. a lot of the time. Mm. And, but that is another thing to to keep in mind, another way to kind of judge developer experience. You can look at all of these feedback loops, cognitive load, but the KPIs and overall kind of like engagement and satisfaction is is a part, is a way to measure that. It's probably the most high-level, like agnostic way of measuring it, right? Like you're just getting a general sense of the, how's the team feel like they're going? Mm-hmm as opposed to like being very, very specific and nuanced, which is hard to do, right? So they can probably run team health checks across all the engineering teams and get relatively similar results that they can use to influence their decision-making. Oh, man, we're probably just unwrapping. There's probably like textbooks yeah. and the whole, like uni students are studying this stuff and oh, we're, we're just like reverse engineering it from a web article. Yeah, from one article. And, and there is so, uh, yeah, I can, this article, it's called DevX, What Actually Drives Productivity. It is very interesting, and they do link to studies as well that they've actually performed. There's a lot of references. It's a very good article, um, but yes, I think it's there's definitely a lot more to it. Yeah. So in saying that, I would love to talk about the tools that could help us, like tools that we use every day that help us, uh, you know, improve our developer experience. That could be things like GitHub Copilot, Copilot, ChatGPT. That could be just any anything, anything that you use. I think that'll be really interesting. We chat about Copilot. Yeah, it's why a not? Recently, new tool that we've been allowed to use now. <laughs> yeah, there's probably people who've been like, I've been using this for two years. What are you talking about? Like for most uh, corporate entities, uh, having something that can just read into your, uh, you know, private business logic, not something that you want to let go rampant across your code bases. Um, yeah, that tool has been amazing. Uh, opening up a test file and then just I start I, I started to write write describe, which is like a just a, a jest term to like start a container of tests, right? And then after I wrote describe, I didn't write another word. I just hit tab like fifteen times, and I actually had all of my like happy path and the obvious because it's a very simple function, like it's not a, not an overly complex function, but in those instances where it is not doing something, you know, significantly complex, it's just writing some happy and unhappy path tests for a simple, you know, validation function, something like that. It is really nice being able to not think about it. And it writes it in the language that we use. It writes test names that we would provide. Uh, it uses our uh, our mock builder packages, you know what I mean? Like it, it's, not, it's writing test mocks in the way we write them. It's writing test names in the way we write them. It's using the test tooling that we use. And you're just hitting one button. 
Uh, and at no point was I worried about my job because uh, it got all the imports wrong. <laughs> Everything was right. Everything was right. It just imported a function that didn't exist. Wow. It, and, which is hilarious because like, uh, how? Why? Like it can look at the code. Why did it not just grab the function? But I mean, if, if that's all I have to do is just change an import, like that's, that's a big step up from writing all that stuff manually myself. Yeah, if anyone doesn't know what GitHub Copilot is, it is a tool by GitHub. It's like an AI pair programming thing. Or yeah, GitHub is a cloud-based artificial intelligence tool developed by GitHub and OpenAI. Um, yeah, to help like speed up code and, and essentially give you code uh, suggestions. Yeah, it's IntelliSense on steroids. Yeah. Have you yeah Have you worked with Amina? Yeah, I've just started using it. Probably like yeah, probably two, three weeks ago, and it's, I've got mixed reviews, actually. I don't mm -hmm. have as glowing an experience as Seamus. I do see, like, yeah, when writing tests, it just kind of knows, you know, what sort of test cases to write. But in times when I'm trying to write a function, I sometimes get sidetracked by what it suggests, and I, I find it distracting sometimes, depending on what, what sort of suggestions it gives me. And then... Like I start, I start to like my brain stops working, or I like you know I don't really rely on my critical thinking to solve this problem, and I just like oh ChatGPT, uh, so not ChatGPT, wrong, wrong thing. Copilot's <laughs> yeah. giving me a suggestion. <laughs> Let's just go with it. And then ten minutes later, I'm like, uh, I should, I should have just thought about it myself and not gone down, like <laughs> not press a tab button. It's like that rude pair programming part of it's just like oh no, you need to do this. No, you need to do this. No, you need to do this, and they just keep like pointing at the screen and be like, "No, you, you need to write this. No, you, you need to write this." And you're like, "Stop it! Stop it! Yeah. I'm just let me write the code. <laughs> let me think. Let me think, and then um, we'll come back and, and like revisit that code." Sometimes um, it definitely whiffs. Like more often than not. So I learned. So I started like looking into Copilot and trying to understand it a little bit better because uh, on paper it sounds like it's amazing, and sometimes it does really awesome stuff. Definitely. Like all these other. Uh, large language model, LLM, like all these other LLM AI, there's like a bit of skill to using it. It's not just like a free thing that's just going to like solve your problems, do magic stuff. Um, and like those, uh, like ChatGPT and whatnot, you actually have to become a bit of a prompt engineer. So I'm finding out that there's actually a technique to using Copilot where if you write a comment first. Yes, I was just about to mention yeah, this. You write yeah. a comment first in like natural language, just like, here's what I want to do, bro. Then you start to write a function and it'll like, between the comment and the the start of your code, it'll try to, to deduce basically what the rest is. And so there is a way to like craft it mm -hmm. to get better results out of it. And that's where I think... Um, it's not, it's not going to replace, like these tools aren't going to replace us. It's just going to change the way that we code. Like we'll have to become better at uh, prompting, basically. And even then the results are going to be stuff that you have to like tinker with and clean up and stuff. But as far, as far as developer experience goes, it's probably been the most impactful tool that's had like a noticeable day-to-day -day change on how I approach coding when I sit down to write code. Yeah, that's really interesting. Learning how to use the tool that you're using in the right way. I think that'll be the difference between important. like devs that really uh, keep up to speed with these new AI tools and the ones that don't will be the people who like learning how to make the tool really do what it's supposed to do mm. is too much friction too much friction for them. For their developer experience, that's worse than them just writing the code. So like it, uh, it, it'll be interesting for me to see uh, the people that, that really do pick up these tools and leverage them fully. Mm. Mm. And I think 
if we're looking at that triangle, I think initially there's going to be that cognitive load of like uh, learning the tool, understanding mm-hmm. it. But I think in the long run, like you'll get into that flow state of like understanding of just being able to pretty much just click tab a bunch of times, get some good code, and then just slowly refactor it. Probably reducing that cognitive load as well because you have to think less about like just I need to write a simple describe or you know test simple test cases, which is really interesting. I, I've had kind of mixed experience as well. Sometimes I think it's really useful, um, but I do like just the autofill of just some things like s- small, like then catch, like simple, simple stuff. It can just write it for me. I don't have to write it a bunch of times. Yeah. It it gets worse the more complex your code base or the file you're working in is. So it's like use a comment, start your code, do it in an empty file, and then pull the output into the file you actually want it to be in. Like there's, there's little tricks that will make it work better. And you'll get better results, more consistent results. Oh, that's good to know. And yeah, the comment thing I've been doing as well. Sometimes I like to code, like I'll comment what I wanted the code to do. And then like then... Multiple comments? <laughs> yeah, well, like I'll write for myself while developing a new solution. I'll be like, the do code a, will do this do B, and yeah. then it'll do this. And, and yeah, so like sometimes ChatGPT can help with that because I'll write all my comments to like understand how my code will work in, like at the end. And then clicking enter, it'll kind of give me some suggestions on how to start that, which, yeah, definitely can help. I haven't done it yet, but I have seen an example where someone was like, um, like, a, like a paragraph basically was, uh, you need to be a gateway to this database. Uh, it needs to be a DynamoDB, so you need to use Dynamo Client. Um, needs to use, basically like dictating, it needs to use Apollo for HTTP requests, Dynamo for this, XYZ. Um, told it what its dependencies should be to, to achieve. So each time it said, this is a task you need to do, it, it told it what the dependency to use for it was. Um, and yeah, it just outputs like a gateway that interacts with all these things and a test suite that has like all the solid tests and stuff. And I'm like, if, if you're in a startup, I feel like those are the people who are going to just get unbelievable benefits from something like Copilot. Is there anything, any other tools you guys use? Any other tools. I was very worried about us talking about Copilot too much. <laughs> yeah. Because it it's like, hey, AI, it's the new hotness. But yeah, what other tools do we have? I mean, at Seek, we've got so many that we could talk about. And they're open source. You've got Braid. Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, some of our like build tools as well. That um, Is Gantry open source? No. No, I don't think so. But, no. but SKU, I believe, is well. SKU. SKU is. Yeah. And that's like particularly for developers that don't have a lot of front-end experience or just, you know, that sort of front-end tooling. Uh, things like SKU can really help just, like, start a project up and start start something really, really quickly. Yeah. Scuba as well. That's Scuba, for a yep. back-end API. Scuba for back-end? Yeah. Is that what it stands for? Scuba. Oh. Scuba back-end. It's Scuba. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Learn something new every day. <laughs> right. Yeah. But there's so much stuff, like... We, I think most of us talk about ourselves as full-stack engineers, but there is so much of what we do that I would, I, I don't call myself a full-stack engineer because, like, I know some of this stuff, but I don't, I don't work significantly. I, I, I know tools. I use the tools that set up all this, all this other infrastructure and stuff like that. But if I had to build it all from scratch, God, it would take me so long to, like, pull all that knowledge back and, and do all the Googling to figure out how to set up all the infrastructure in AWS and all the rest of it, you know? So it's like... Our developer experience at Seek, and I'm sure most big companies, is heavily impacted by the fact that we have entire dedicated teams to building tooling to reduce friction. 
Yeah, which, uh, yeah, I, and I, I love that sort of site, like developing tools to help developers build things. I didn't realize that I would love that as like, that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. At first I was like, I want to build a product. I like, I like being able to see someone's face when they click the button that I made and, and knowing that, hey, I've got a million clicks on this one button I added to this massive corporate software. Ah, oh, fantastic. And then as soon as I started working on developer tools, I'm like, oh, I can actually sit down with my customer and actually like build the thing with them. But yeah, building dev tools is uh, so much fun. Yeah, it's very satisfying because you can, you know, p- particularly if developers are happy, like you can, and you can kind of quantify that. If it is p- open source, you get stars, you get follows, like that, that always feels nice. But yeah, just, just seeing like a developer be able to work quicker and do their job better is, is, is very satisfying. Uh, actually, you mentioned Braid. I will say that is one that I very much enjoy. Like not having to think about CSS pretty much almost mo- most of the time is, is very nice. Very, very nice. Yep. Trying to think if there's other tools that aren't specific what to about, like, there's, Arog. There's quite a few like VS Code extensions, even things like um, <clears throat> like Jest plugins. Just oh. to quickly like run it. Like, you click on Run yeah. where a test is. That's amazing. Yep. I have a, a Nyan Cat loader, so everything that loads in VS Code has the little Nyan Cat rainbow. It's like the little, <laughs> it's it's so a little pop tart cat flying across the screen with a rainbow behind it. Like, yeah, that's oh, wow. a that's a positive net gain for my developer experience for sure. That's amazing. Yeah. Can we also talk about the basic stuff like Prettier and ESLint? It's oh, funny. We've been yes. talking about like Copilot. Thank you so much for bringing that up because I, uh, how did I ever live in a world without uh, dev time validation of like the structure of my code? Oh, oh God. That's every second, but I'm like, just like format, format. Like I just, I want, I just love to see it. I just, it makes me happy seeing formatted code, but yeah. Yeah, it's funny because, boy, boy. you know, we used to get told to like always save often, right? Like save all the time because uh, you could lose your, your machine could die and you lose all your work at, at a moment's notice. That did not make me save as much as auto format on save. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like seeing like, oh, I just wrote a bunch of stuff and I'm not worried about what it looks like. I'm like, whatever, just do the thing. Five, ten lines later, just command S, keep going, command S, <laughs> keep going. Uh, yeah. I feel like the the linting thing is definitely probably one of the, It's. I feel like it's the, the silent uh, champion, you know? It's like the, the thing that does so much heavy lifting at making sure our code is good and consistent. And it's just like, unless you're, one of those people who uh, constantly is messing around with our scuba and stuff like that. You just don't really think about it. It's just there doing its job. Yeah, that's how you know it's a good tool when it's like just instinctive for you to use. The tool itself doesn't even add friction. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it just yeah. net negative friction, that's it. Um, I think it also like having that shared under- shared understanding of how we format our code, what sort of... Um, rules like linting rules that we have on our code just keeps the code so easy to read and if you're working with someone else on the same code base speaking from personal experience doing uni not (laughs) having any prettier or linting and git diffs was a nightmare to understand you didn't they didn't allow you though you just didn't have no we didn't have it wow (laughs) very hacky project um bad bad practices not yeah I think we were just <laughs> figuring coding it out in along text the way. editor. Yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> and then when you save it, oh, if people had different um, prettier um, configs and stuff like that, it's just you go in there. You don't need to wrap your head around oh the the errors over there, or you know, this, it's doing some weird casting here or there. 
you don't need, the cognitive load is lower. You just go straight into what is the code trying to do. Mm. And certainly the flow state as well. Like just knowing like we, we're all working on the same sort of thing. Like you, you can kind of get into that flow quicker. You, yeah. you don't have to worry about how you format. Mm. You just click save or yep. your form, format uh, shortcut. And mm. yeah. In a, especially in open source repos, right? Like I've only done a few things on major open source packages, but when I have made those changes, the ones that don't have linting, and the feedback coming back is like, oh, this doesn't match our indentation or da-da-da-da. And you're just like iterating, iterating, iterating. And then it's like, oh, there's this extra thing that I should be doing. Oh, cool, I'll just do that at the same time. And then same feedback loop of like PRs from people who have full-time jobs and the feedback is coming from like five different people. It's like, yeah. In a corporation with 800 people, like 800, however many engineers we've got, yeah, linting makes a lot of sense. Make sure we're consistent. Don't have to think about it. But it's true for everyone, even small repos. Like, yeah. Definitely one of those things that I, I feel like I can't imagine going into a code base and not having it now. Yeah, even, um, I mean, adding types, like TypeScript I think has really helped kind of be more, uh, just just kind of aware of what my code is doing, like being able to say, this is a string, now I know this, like not having to worry about validating everything. You know, you can be a, bit, a little bit more certain. I think that's even why like languages like Rust have got more popular because like, their the feedback loop of, loop of errors and the how clear some of those errors can be is is very convenient and probably helps that developer experience a lot. Just the language itself, right? I I, I have heard that people who are, like, people who like Rust really like Rust. I've never written in it, but it's one of those things that I'm becoming more aware of is uh, how your language handles errors and you know promote. Uh, like formats them and stuff actually makes like such a huge impact on just being able to understand what the hell's going on with your code. Like I only learned the other day that, you know, the time old debate, like interface versus type in TypeScript, uh, they're basically interchangeable, right? For like 99% of scenarios, except for some very specific things, like you can't do unions with interfaces. Well, you can, mm -hmm. but it's just weird. That's right, yeah. Interface and type resolve their errors very differently. Interface has very nice to read errors and type does not. And now that I know this, I use interface a lot more and people hate it because everyone's like, we use type everywhere. I'm like, yeah, but type, the errors on the type suck. Yeah. Like, unless you need to do unions, like why, do you, why not just use interface if the errors are going to be easier to read? Yeah, I've heard if you're doing like... Um, Don't at me. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard if you're doing like um, open source or, or like a, a library that people will use that, yeah, using interfaces because you can extend them and that, that also helps other people extend your library and getting errors. I've heard that's where a lot of benefits can come from. Yeah, because um, you just use the same name and you're essentially like extending the interface without having to touch the package. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because you can't extend types, right? So, it, like, it's a way to help extend the the interface itself. So, yeah, I've I've seen some use cases for that. If it's your own code, though, yeah, I guess it really depends. Um, you know, if, yeah. There if you the, go. Like open open source developer experience, like something we weren't talking about very much either, right? Like. Mm -hmm. It comes down to just even just choosing interface versus type can have a big impact on the developer experience for from a npm package consumer perspective. There was one thing I really wanted to talk about, which we talked about tools and stuff, which I think is really important. I'm a really big uh, advocate for strong, consistent architectural paradigms. So it's really hard to come into a repo where there is a no, there is no consistent. Um, pattern, rhyme, or reason for like where things go. Like if, if, if I look at a code base 
and can't identify where the infrastructure layer is, where your like business logic layer is, where your application layer. Like you should be able to, you know, screaming architecture tells us that like the way your files are named and your folders are named and everything should scream what the behavior is. Um, you couple that with something like clean architecture, which very clearly outlines like these are the layers of your code. This layer cannot import from layers above it. So like entities and data objects never import from anything other than entities and data objects, infrastructure layer, X, Y, Z, so on and so forth. When you know and you have a clear structure around um, where logic should live, like validation of uh, v data, like value uh, entity data happens inside the entities. Validation of external data coming in from the outside world happens at the infrastructure layer. It happens in your gateway. So like you just go into a folder and like in that folder is every piece of code that interacts with the outside world and does some kind of IO operation. So it's, it becomes trivial. Like I don't even need to think about what I'm doing. I just know that the kind of logic change I'm making is in one of those buckets. And I just go to that folder and I have all the examples of how we do that thing. Like it might be a Dynamo, it might be a, a database gateway or, or some other kind of gateway. If I'm doing something relatively similar, I, uh, it's right there. I can just scroll down, have a look at all the examples and be like, oh, well, this one loosely does what I need to do. I can let you know be consistent with the rest of the code base, copy paste, make some changes, that kind of thing. When you don't have that, like that's really strong in just a single code base. But then if you go to another team who who maybe has a different, entirely different approach, like clean architecture is a very specific kind of, uh, thank you, Uncle Bob, peace out, Uncle Bob. Uh, it's a very specific kind of architecture. But there's all these different ways, MVP, MM, uh, what is it, MVC? Yep. MMVC? There's all these yeah. different uh, architectural patterns, right? But if you have one that your team has agreed on and your repos are consistent with that pattern, it doesn't matter if I like this other pattern better or if that's the only one I'm comfortable with because all of them loosely, roughly have, they're solving the same kind of problem. They're trying to create clear boundaries so that it's a, it's a developer experience problem. Like the, the architecture of the code does nothing for the performance generally, right? Like it's, it's to make it easier for you to work on the code. And for me, like, you know, tests can be good or bad, whatever. Like all these different things we've talked about, like you can have access to big giant tools like Braid and Gantry and all these things that make your life easier, whatever. Like uh, you can live without those things. But for me, the one thing that I'm like, <laughs> I will die on this hill and every team I'm ever in, I will always advocate and push for consistency in this regard is your architectural paradigms. Like the your tickets having descriptions. <laughs> tickets, <laughs> tickets having descriptions. Yeah, I, I would... Uh, no, we're not getting back into this. I would go empty tickets if I would if I had to choose one or the other. It'd be I will take empty tickets if the code base has a really clear architecture. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Raina? Do you have any takeaways, takeaways. from today's recording? I think um, information architecture is basically what you were talking about, Seamus. Like where you organize, how you organize your code and stuff like that. But even the code that you write, something that I I'm really benefited from people who have made a, a really big effort in making naming or even the way you write the code, even though it might not be as succinct as it could be, just conveying the intent of the code makes another developer's experience so much better. And also myself when I come back a day or so later. <laughs> but really understanding what the code is doing is really important to me. Yeah, you were talking about working capacity, uh, mm. working mental capacity, and yeah, mine is very low. I mean, there's maybe an average of remembering five things. I remember like two or three. I have to write everything down. Definitely what you said, Marina. Mm. Uh, I feel like uh, that's a go read Clean Code by Uncle Bob. <laughs> yeah, 100%, 100%. There's so many good tips that we could list right now, but honestly, just go, go check out Uncle Bob's Clean Code because that is uh, hands down 
again, one of those things that just makes such a massive impact and it's you don't even notice that it, that it's being done until you read the code and realize, oh, I didn't have to scroll back up and down and up and down. You just read from top to bottom and code explains itself. Yeah, yeah I, I do know some people uh, have very mixed feelings on Uncle Bob's things though. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> but it is a good book and and whether you agree in everything in there, yeah, I think it is. there's some valuable lessons to be learned in that book. My takeaway, I think you guys have already given really great examples of how you could like... Uh, improve it. I think my takeaway was just like seeing how we can uh, how we can measure it, surveys and 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 actually that point and like measuring not just the KPI surveys, but yeah, measuring how do you feel about our speed on on tests and CI and like things that we just don't actually measure here at Seek at all. I think was my takeaway. Um, that how, framework that you shared will um, was really helpful. Just bucketing, you know. Having a framework to think about DevX is yeah. it's good because DevX is so broad, like what we we're saying. But having that, yeah, feedback loops, cognitive, cognitive load, flow state. Yeah. Thinking about those three aspects for developer experience was that was my takeaway. Cool. Yeah, something <laughs> I learned today. Yeah. It's going to be on my mind for sure, hundred percent. Next time I'm feeling friction, I'm going to be thinking about those three things. Fantastic. All right. Well, that was great. Thank you for listening to the Seek Bytes podcast for software engineers by software engineers we will see you next time thank you i hope you had a good experience